Morning, everybody. Hello, hello. Jeez, it's chilly today, hey? We've got the heaters working in the back there. Does it feel a little bit like you're in the fireplace, I think? Some of you going, yeah. Others of you going, what do you mean heaters? Uh, uh, it's my privilege to share with us a message as we've been working through the book of James. As you can see, we've uh, broken the book of James up into four mini-series. So we're in the second one now, which has got six episodes. And uh, we're in part five of this uh, second mini-series as we work through the book of James. What's the second mini-series all about? Well, it's James looking at real faith. James is looking at real faith. He's talking about what real faith in Jesus is. And he's making the case that when your faith is real, it leads to a change in your life. James is making the case that real faith leads to a transformed life. That when you receive the gospel, and James's word for that, uh, he uses different ones, but one of them is the word of truth. When the word of truth, you embrace it and you begin to, to work with its working in your life, it, you will be changed. It's, it's impossible to have real faith and not be changed in, uh, in who you are and who you're becoming. And so I want to frame today what we're doing in this meeting. Uh, as Christ followers, hey, if you're not a Christ follower and you're looking in, you're getting a real window into what Christianity looks like. Spoken, James was Jesus' younger brother. And, and, and so he's writing to the early church um, around what this church looks like that's formed in the person of Christ. If you're not a Christ follower, what a fantastic meeting to be looking into, asking questions. But if you're a Christian, this meeting, let me explain to you what this meeting is. is what, what we're doing is we've worshipped as we've come under God's word and song. Now we're coming under God's word as we submit to it and we're asking God to speak to us and to change us. But I want you to know that I'm aiming towards the communion table today. Uh, as, we, as we read God's word, we're leaning towards the table as we're trusting that God is going to meet us with his with his very real presence as we, as we eat of the bread and we, eat, we drink of the, of the wine symbolic of Christ's body and his blood shed for us. We're trusting that Christ is going to meet us there. So let's come to the word, but knowing we're, going to move, we're moving towards the table where Jesus is going to meet us. James is speaking to us about real faith and how it impacts on our real everyday lives. Before we dive in, Sean's word to us around healing and deep scars I think, I think this is something that God's speaking to us today. Obviously, there, there, there were individuals that God maybe spoke this to during worship, but I think corporately we need to realize that we live in a society where 30, we're, 30, we're, we're decades, three decades on, we're in the third decade on from, um, from real deliverance from apartheid as a society. And it's clutches and it's fingers and it's influence shaping power. And yet, not like a superficial flesh wound, its scars still live on and shape our society and shape the way we think and see other people if we're real honest as Christ followers. And so I'm trusting that as we look at what James is leading us into today in his word, this would be a moment where Christ would do some of that healing in our very souls, where we have been scarred and marred through what has happened in our society. Take a look with me, James chapter 2, verse 8 to 13. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself, he's quoting. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you, commit, if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, 
You have become the transgressor of the law. So speak, so, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray together. Father, as we come before your word, we're your children, Lord. As we were so beautifully reminded today. We ask, Lord, as we gather around your word and underneath your word, would you speak to us today, God? Our hearts, our wounds, our ways of thinking, our mindsets, our worldviews. As your children, we're saying, God, they're not off limits to you. Would you speak to us today? We need your healing. We need your truth to renew how we think and how we love. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Right, our big idea today is that real faith loves in light of God's mercy. Real faith loves in light of God's mercy. Now, normally what I'll do is I'll unpack our big idea, but I'm actually going to build towards that big idea at the end and try and show you how this is true in this text throughout our message. But the, the big thing that we're holding in our minds here is that real faith, as we've been working through with James, loves loves others in light of mercy that it has received. And my first point today is faith and discrimination are incompatible. Faith and discrimination are incompatible. Verse 8 and verse 9. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbors, you love yourself. You are doing well. But if you show, and here's the key word, partiality. If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So let's double click as we zoom in on a few of these words here. Let's look first, for instance, at the royal law. What does James mean when he says the royal law? To to translate this literally into English from the Greek is to translate it to say the law of the king. The law of the king. Remember, James is writing to Jewish people, Jewish believers who had become Christ followers. And so they bring with them a history of Judaism and then have come to Christ. And so what does James mean when he speaks of the royal law? Not just the the Torah, which we'll see him speak of in a second. Not just the Old Testament laws. He was speaking of the law from the Old Testament as expounded by and expanded by King Jesus. So take, for example, uh, Matthew chapter 5. If, maybe if you're new to the Bible, you know the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus' kind of ethical teachings for life. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 27 and 28, Jesus takes a teaching from the Old Testament, and then he expands it for his first followers. And so he says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Now we're, just, we're in the Old Testament, we're in the Torah. And then Jesus says, And he expands it, verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. When James speaks of the royal law, he's speaking of the Old Testament law as expanded and expounded by King Jesus. And which aspect of the royal law is he applying to us here today? He's applying this aspect. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And he he sets up two contrasting ideas. If you really want to keep the law, you're doing well. If you really nail it, you are knocking it out the park, he's saying. But, here's the contrast, if you show partiality, if you show favoritism, if you show preference to people based on external features, you sin, he says. Sin is the literal word for bow and arrow, 
being shot, hitting a target, and you miss the mark. The, the, the gap here is sin. He's saying, you think you're following Jesus, but you show partiality. You're missing what it is to follow Jesus. So what does this word partiality mean? Literally in the Greek, it means judging or valuing someone else according, literally according to their face. According, you value someone, you judge someone according to their face. You see another human being made in the image of God, and you value them and you rank them or you treat them on the basis of external characteristics in their lives. In James's time, they were discriminating against people based on their wealth and their income, treating rich people very well and poor people very poorly based on their wealth. That was James's time, but obviously we've moved on from that today, hey? Nervous laughter. Faith and face-based discrimination are incompatible, James is saying to us, because discrimination violates the law of love. Loving your neighbors, you love yourself. James is still dealing with real faith and how real faith, the word of truth at the center of your being, transforms your real life. And it's clear that discrimination is in some way crept into the lives of the believers in the church. And so James takes off the gloves and he addresses it head on. I think, I think, I mean, I'm just guessing, we can do speculate, but I think James is doing this, and this is such, such a big deal to him, because in some way, James had seen firsthand, remember I said to you, James was Jesus' younger brother. Uh, he, he had seen the church born. He'd become a leader in the church himself. James had seen firsthand in the life of Jesus the kind of community that Jesus was building. Jesus was building a community that looked nothing like the communities of the world. And James, having looked at the community that Jesus had built and was building, and looked at the church, he struggled to reconcile them because they didn't match each other. James seeing this. And so James addresses this head on. You see, he says, Jesus, I saw. He says, I saw in Jesus a way of dealing with people, a way of being with people that was kind, that, that didn't discriminate based on external things. He, 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 Jesus related to people in an extraordinarily different way. Think of Jesus' teaching, the, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. We often, we often hear, maybe if you grew up in the church or you've heard this expounded for you, maybe in a Christian school, you hear the story of the Good Samaritan. The kind of moral of the story is, therefore, we should always uh, be kind to other people and care for other people. That's what we think the story is. But actually, if you were one of the original audience hearing Jesus tell that, 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 that story, you would have seen something quite different. You see, the Samaritans and the Jews were like oil and water. They, they didn't connect. They didn't get on. The Jews looked down on them. They were like kind of sellouts. And the idea of a Jewish person being in need and receiving help from a Samaritan, can you imagine the height of apartheid in South Africa? And the story goes of a white man who was beaten and lying on the side of the road. And now a black man, the heart of apartheid, comes along and takes out of his pocket money to pay for this guy to be healed. You would hear differently than, let's be, unto, let's be kind to other people, right? You'd start to see a different way of interacting with each other as human beings that cuts across these external dividing things that we see in culture and society. That's what the parable of the Good Samaritan, really, that's the heart of what it's all about. This is what Jesus does. He sets up a way of dealing with people that is... It's, it's filled with extraordinary kindness. It wasn't just there. It, John chapter 4, Jesus comes across a woman 
Siri, I need to find the setting to switch that off. Um, John chapter 4, Jesus comes across a, a woman at a well. I'll read it to you as we follow along. I don't know if I have it up on the screen, but let me read it to you. John 4, from verse 7. A woman from Samaria. See, John wants us to know. Where's she from? She's a woman, and she's from Samaria. She came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? Do you see that? You see the context that's at play here? And then John dials us in here. He says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus said to her, if you knew of the gift of God and who it is that is saying this to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Hold that image in your mind as we move toward the table later. The conversation goes on and it's verse 27. And just then the disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with the woman But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? No one said anything, but it's clear from John. They were all thinking it, right? They were all thinking, why is is Jesus talking to her? She's She's a Samaritan woman of all people. She looks on the outside like this. And yet, Jesus is dealing with her like that. Jesus, he he saw through the things that would divide the external, and he dealt with the human being in the midst of all of that. It was just so foreign to them. It's still so foreign to us today. Verse 28, how the story ends in verse 29. So the woman left her water jar, and she went away to her town, and she said to all the people, come and see, come and see the man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they went out of the town, and they were coming to Jesus. Here was someone on the other side, someone on the the other team, someone who looked different, someone who should have not been able to mix with Christ, yet through the way Jesus dealt with her, he cut through all those things, and many like her came to Christ, because Jesus dealt with people with unexpected kindness. He looked through people's external, he looked through their face value, and he saw the true human being in the image of God within them. And James had seen this, and then he saw the church. He said, you know, Jesus saw people like this. Jesus treated people like this. Jesus built a community like this. And yet you guys discriminate. You see people. Someone's wealthy, you think this. Someone's poor, you think this. And he struggled to reconcile these two things because he couldn't reconcile believers discriminating against others based on external characteristics. And he he couldn't reconcile this with Christ. Now, this is one of the things, if you're looking into the Bible, this is one of the things that makes Christianity different than all other faiths, all other other belief systems, not just faith, all other worldviews, really. Here here is something that helps, I think, gives Christians an edge in how we engage with all human beings in the world. We see human beings not based on their external appearances, but based on the image of God within them. David Brooks says it much better than me. He's a political journalist in the U.S. This is what he says. He says, there's a piece of you that has no shape, that has no size, that has no color, that has no weight. And it gives you infinite dignity and value. Rich and successful people, you can hear James's words almost, they don't have more of this than less successful people. Slavery is wrong because it's an obliteration of another human being's soul, this sacred part of you that comes from God. 
Brooks is saying that when you understand another human being is made in the image of God, they're more than, a human being is more than, uh, forgive my crudeness, more than flesh or with the ability to reason. This is a human being. You treat others a particular way because you've seen through the external to the core value and worth of what that person is. It means this, that I don't have to necessarily agree with the person's preferences. I don't have to agree with somebody's lifestyle choices. I don't have to agree with their practices. But I can never treat that person as less than human. Because I can never undermine their humanity. It doesn't mean we agree with everything. But it does mean we can never treat people as less than human. Which is just exactly so much of what is missing in our world today, isn't it? So much of cancel culture. So much of the social media hostility we see. The, 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 the hatred and the violence uh, in terms of uh, online stuff that we see amongst people. is a failure to be able to differ with someone and yet see them as worth something in the image of God. Christianity gives us that ability. Um, C.S. Lewis said it as well in some way. He said, it, he said this, There are no ordinary people. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as, a, as, as, li- as, life, as the life of a gnat. Sorry, that was terrible. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. It's like a male mosquito, I think. But it's immortals with whom we joke and we work and we marry and we snub and we exploit or we discriminate against. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Christianity gives us a unique edge in our society. It's a way of valuing human beings not based on their external because you see the innate value of God within him. Uh, as a little aside here, uh, James reminds us of money's power to blind us to this. In James's context, it was wealth. It was people being discriminated against on the basis of their wealth. Money has a power to blind us to the reality of the true worth of God. Jesus spoke about man, mammon, uh, money, about money and mammon many times. Ma- mammon as a living power wanting to influence our lives that would blind us to reality. I think in our moment of history, it's no different. We live in in, in a society in South Africa, which is one of the most unequal, if not, I think it's been rated recently, the most unequal society on the planet. That's our home. That's where we live. And it's this message that James is saying, uh, be careful of materialism and mammon's power to blind you to the reality of whom it is that you do life with in the context of this extraordinarily uh, unequal society. Faith and discrimination are bottom line, James says, incompatible. Makes sense. Why do we struggle with this so much then? I mean, obviously, part of it is a legacy, which, which, which comes from the world in which we live. But it's more than that. It's not just societies that looked like ours uh, years ago. It's all over the globe. And I think, and James gives us an answer to this. He says, we struggle because we compartmentalize our faith. Look at, look at this in verse 10 and 11. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he said, do not commit adultery. He also said, do not murder. 
If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become transgressors of the law. James is speaking to Jewish Christians, and now he shifts from the royal law to the Mosaic law, in a sense here. And and he speaks about the temptation to follow some of the areas of God's law and and not others. And, And you think it's okay to let some slip because you're doing okay in another area. You've compartmentalized. Because you're nailing it and not committing adultery, he says, uh, but, but, but yet you, you commit murder. Now, no adultery, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm doing okay, I've got no adultery, I've just got a little bit of murder. It, it just seems ridiculous, eh? It seems ludicrous. And I think James is saying, look how absurd this is. Murder and adultery make this seem so obvious to us. But, but it's not just in the obvious that James is saying. James is giving us another principle here. He's saying this, and I, just see if you can follow this one. Uh, only keeping the whole law keeps the law whole. Only in keeping the whole law keeps the law whole. He's speaking to the principle of what we call the unity of God's law. Just stick with me. I hope you took your caffeine this morning and your vitamins. He's speaking of the principle of the unity of God's law. In other words, the individual commandments become part of an indivisible whole. All of these things together, you can't separate bits and pieces. All of these things together add up to one whole because it's the law. It's not just a set of random things. It's not just individual things. They add up collectively to the will of the law giver. The law is not just a set of rules. It's not merely right and wrong, but it's a reflection of the one who gives it. And so to drop some and to elevate others is to distort the very nature of the law giver, James is saying. We, we, we hold the whole together. Again, just as a little aside, we've got to be honest with ourselves in this cultural moment as Christians. It's very tempting to choose parts of God's law that we keep and parts that we neglect. Every culture throughout history is going to find parts of the Bible that will sit well with our culture, love and peace now, and parts that don't rub well with culture. And the temptation is to major on the bits that fit well with culture, that find common ground with society, and to neglect the others. But we've got to see by overemphasizing one aspect of God's law and underemphasizing others, we actually give birth to a distortion of what God is like. It's how all major heresies and untruths are born, whether that be hyper-grace, the prosperity gospel, legalism, universalism. It's a, even our modern tendencies in our culture to kind of soften the Bible's sexual ethics as well. It's very tempting, but all of these things lead to a distortion of who God is. The bottom line is we cannot drive a wedge between God's law and God's love. They go together. That's why we call it, we call it the law of love. We, we must receive the whole of God's law and the whole of God's truth so as to reflect the truth and the fullness of God's nature. And so we've got to be aware of this. Bottom line, James is saying to us, faith and discrimination are incompatible. We struggle with this because it's tempting to compartmentalize and think, well, I'm doing well in here, therefore I can excuse this one. If you're a Christian and you live in South Africa, this one we've got to go to work on in our hearts, guys. We'd be naive to think that we've been unscathed through our history and in our thinking and our biases and our programming and our brains when it comes to these things. 
James is saying, no, 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 I've seen how Jesus was with people. I've seen the community that formed around him. You, Christ wants something more for you than this. So how do we get this right? Verse 12 and verse 13. So speak and so act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has, been sh- who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. Here James is in a sense contrasting the Mosaic law with what we see here as the law of liberty in verse 12. Or the gospel. The law of liberty being the gospel with the Mosaic law here. And he's contrasting these things. And he's effectively saying if you're going to live according to the Mosaic law, uh, you're never going to be able to live up to all of these things. right? You're, you're always going to be doomed to failure. 613 laws in the Old Testament. You're never going to nail all of these things. So rather live according to the new law which Christ which Christ fulfilled when he created it by living out the Old Testament law on your behalf and trusting upon his mercy. I say that again, rather live according to the new law which Christ created by fulfilling the old law on your behalf and then trusting upon Jesus' mercy. But there's a warning in here. There's a warning though, and he says, speak and act as those who are about to be judged. There's much debate in the church about when Jesus will return and what the events around his return will look like. But everyone in the church agrees that Jesus will return. And when Jesus does return, he is bringing with him, among other things, his justice. And that every single human being will give an account for their lives. And James says, in that moment, trust upon the mercy of Christ over your flawless living out of God's laws. Trust upon the mercy of Christ over your flawless living of God's laws. In the gospel, God's mercy triumphed over our failure and the corresponding judgment that we occur upon ourselves. But Christians will face judgment, although our judgment will be before the mercy seat of Christ in his grace and in his mercy. And so live in light of God's coming judgment and live in light of God's coming mercy. But here's the thing. And I think we often forget this when Christians speak about justice and judgment. Because you have been, if you're a Christ follower, because you've been transformed by the gospel, because you've been empowered by the Spirit, judgment is something you can look forward to as a believer. It's something you should be looking forward to. You should, we should be living in such a way, James is saying real faith leads to real life, leads to a transformed life. We should be living transformed by the gospel, being given a new nature, empowered by the Holy Spirit every day in such a way as to anticipate a favorable outcome in judgment because we've been so transformed and we've been so empowered that we're able to live not just in the ways of our culture, but we're able to live in the ways of Christ. Christ, that as we approach judgment, we're starting to get excited because in the words that Jesus did, we're living toward that day when we stand before our heavenly father and he says over us, well done, good and faithful servant. Judgment day shouldn't be this terrifying thing. Yes, it should sober us. 
Yes, it should make us mindful of what's happening in our world, but it should, as Christ followers, put into us an anticipation because God has transformed us and empowered us to, to live toward that day in a beautiful thing. Douglas Moo, commentating on James, he says this, the gospel places us on a new footing and empowers us to live obediently in a new way. No longer is the law over us threatening to condemn us. Now we embrace it because we love it. There's a change that so happens in your heart and empowering that so happens in you through Christ that we love the law of God and we live it out in our lives. God's mercy has freed us from condemnation for sin and now it empowers us to live in God's ways. In fact, it's the only way of living that's compatible with your new nature in Christ. been a lot of words today. I need to earth this in something. Um, we were talking in a life group this week. The story of, a, of an eagle that was found by a farmer. And uh, the farmer put the eagle egg into the nest with the chicken eggs. And the eagle grew up living its entire life, raised with, rubbing short feathers with other chickens. And so all it learned to do was to live in this way ate food off the ground, the little millies that fell, whatever, you know what I mean? Never learned to fly because chickens don't fly. James is saying that when you receive the gospel, you who were an eagle become like that eagle. When the eagle looks up and sees Christ, I mean, sorry, not Christ, the other eagle flying and soaring and gets a window as to what it really was created to do and to be and then begins to look and see, no, no, that's, that's incompatible with who I am. A, a flightless life for a creature like that is ridiculous. It would settle for clucking around in the dust. And so this eagle sees in Christ, I mean in the eagle that flew over above, what it was in, 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 created to be. And so then with the empowering of the Holy Spirit, I mean, I mean whatever eagles get, I don't know what that is. It then and it lives in these new ways in its world. That's what James is saying. He says, you live in a world that's trained you to think like this, to value people and to think like this. No, no, but you are not a chicken. You are an eagle now. You've been transformed by the gospel. You've been filled with the Spirit of God. You've seen what this looks like in Jesus. Now live not like your culture. Not like the South Peninsula, which, by the way, is still one of the most segregated parts of one of the most segregated nations in the world. He says, come and fly like an eagle. Live in a different way. Having, ex having experienced mercy from Jesus. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Having experienced firsthand the mercy of Christ. So now live and relate to others on the basis of extending that same mercy horizontally to them. Vertical mercy has come to your life. Horizontal mercy comes out of your life. Having received mercy from Christ, so now you show mercy, especially to the poor, James says. This now becomes one of the real markers of real life, one of the real markers of real faith. The big idea today, real faith loves in light of God's mercy. Because when you've been freed, you live in such a way as to free others rather than discriminate and oppress them. Having received mercy from God, you see through the external facade 
to the reality of the image of God, the soul that is within that person. And you relate to them with an extraordinary, unexpected kindness, with a worth and a dignity, regardless of external things that would separate and differ, differ with you otherwise. Because you see, mercy-healed eyes see others through mercy-healed eyes. And so an extraordinarily different kind of community is born. Does that make sense? Common ground is in South Penn. To live, I, don't, I feel like being cheesy now, to live like eagles in the South Penn. If you know what I mean? Anything less is incompatible with who Christ has made you to be and how he is empowering your life to live. So today I want to, in a sense, serve notice on this. But mindful that none of us is perfect here. All of us have been marred. All of us carry scars by how we view and relate to other people. So we come to Christ to receive healing for those things. And so now I want to transition from my message. I want to transition toward the table. Paul, writing to the church in 1 Corinthians 11, he said, For I have received from the Lord what I have also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body. Two halves now. Two pieces, torn apart. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the, the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it and in, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Can I ask that we uh, all get up and we, we grab, if, if you're a follower of Christ, grab a, uh, some, uh, some of the um, bread over there on the tables. There's two tables behind us and some of the wine. And there's also on the front here as well. There should be two there, another one over here. Okay, one there and one there. Sorry, I'm making it up as I go along. But won't everyone please go and take one of these here and then come? let's stand in our seats together. I want to lead us to this moment together as children of God before our Father. Just so you know, we're, we're freshly looking at uh, communion in, in our church, around right? how we believe and how we practice it as elders grappling with this. Because somehow, this just doesn't seem to do justice to what Christ did that original night with his followers. We're grappling with it. This meal was given as a sign of unity within the church. 
as Christ's body, as I said, it doesn't quite do justice, as Jesus' body was broken apart, so too we who were scattered are made whole because Christ was torn apart. We are brought together. It's why Jesus breaks the bread. He says, this is my body that was broken for you. It's not just, it's deeply personal. Don't get me wrong. But it's not just personal. It's corporate too. Before, before Jesus said that his body was, his, it was whole. And then it was torn apart on the cross. In order that we who were scattered and broken and saw one another through divisions of various ways, shapes, and forms, now have been unified and brought together as a family in Christ and made whole. As much as uh, there are so many different grains of wheat that have been ground up, and have, each one unique and different has been brought together to make one loaf of bread, so too we become indistinct, in a sense, one whole through Christ's unifying power and presence. We also, though, get to ask in his presence for healing, for skin grafts, for things to be cut out of our way of thinking and feeling and, 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 and to be restored in these things. Jesus said in John 6, he said, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. But this bread that comes down from heaven so that the one who eats of it will not die. I am living bread, came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give will be the bread of life. It's the word of my flesh. Jesus mediates himself to us by these elements. Yes, this is bread, and yes, this is grape juice, symbolic of wine. But the Spirit of God takes these extraordinarily ordinary elements and ministers to us something sacred and beautiful as he mediates to us the person of Christ, his body and his blood shed for us for our regeneration, for new life to come to us. The Spirit mediates to us today the person and presence of Jesus. As we, in a sense, we're mindful, remembering we take him into ourselves. He himself, like a cure to a disease, he, he renews us, he, he restores us, he transforms us. His way of thinking infiltrates our way of thinking. He sustains us. This is no ordinary meal as the children of God come into the presence of God and we partake together of communion. And so as a family united in Christ, Let's, let's share of this together. I want to pray for us. Jesus, your body was broken because we who were broken needed to be made whole. We cannot make ourselves whole, Jesus. We ask Christ, as we eat of this bread, as we drink of this grape juice, would you, Holy Spirit, minister to us Christ, who would revitalize tired hearts, Lord, who would refresh minds that are, that are limping, Lord Jesus. You would cleanse 
ways of viewing others, God. Ways of viewing ourselves that are not of you. And you would renew us according to yourself, Jesus. And so come Holy Spirit and minister to us in this moment, we pray. The sacred moment where your children come before you, Heavenly Father, through the, through, the, through the grace that comes through Christ. And the Spirit of God ministers that to us now. As we do eat of this bread, as we drink of this wine, perhaps there's certain things in your life you want to ask Jesus to minister to. Maybe there's wounds, as Sean spoke so beautifully to us earlier while we were singing. What is that thing that you're trusting Christ to minister to you? Come, Jesus, and make us more like you, we pray. Amen. this Easter as we looked at your word we saw how the disciples they couldn't see you and then as they ate of the bread and drank the wine Luke 24 their eyes were opened as they ate of the bread and they could see you Lord and they knew you were alive Jesus would you open our eyes in this moment as we as we take you into ourselves would you open our eyes Jesus to see ourselves, to see you, and to see others in you. Forgive us, Jesus. Forgive us, where, as James's words, where there's sin inside of us, where we have shown and are showing partiality, favoritism, discriminating against others, Jesus. Let's this is we're praying. This is not just theory. This is practice in my life and your life. God, we come under your word. Forgive us. Where have you strayed? Bring this to Jesus. Open my eyes, Jesus, to see the way you see. Heal me, Lord Jesus. Forgive me where I've discriminated Christ. Heal where I've been discriminated against. Help us to see others in this world as you do Christ. Change our hearts and make us like you, Jesus, we pray. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your presence and your power that you minister to us. Thank you that mercy has triumphed over judgment and that we're freed and empowered to live in your ways, Jesus. Amen. Amen.